Ephesians chapter 6, verse 10 beginning. Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. And put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers, against rulers of the darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in, in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God. Somebody say the whole armor. The whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand. Stand therefore, having girded your waist with truth, having put on the breastplate of righteousness and having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace. Above all, taking the shield of faith with which you will be able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked one and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. Father, I thank you this morning for your grace. I thank you for your word that is forever settled in heaven. And Lord, I'm asking that as we host your presence and we open your word, that you would speak to us. And Lord, that you would cause us to live a life, Lord, that is pleasing and honoring to you. And we give you thanks. In Jesus' name we pray. And everybody shout amen and amen. Be seated all over the room today. I pray that you had a happy Thanksgiving. And I pray that you were filled with joy and the Holy Ghost because you need it after yesterday. Unless you're a Michigan fan and I don't want to hear it. So just shh. Thank you, Lord. For peace. I want to start this morning a series. If we can cut this mic down just a little bit more, I'm getting just a touch of ring. If we can just cut it down a little bit more. Uh, I want to start a series this morning. I can't tell you how long it's going to be. I plan on it being two weeks, but it might be three. Uh, and, and we're only going to get to two pieces of the armor of God today. Okay. Uh, you got to trust me. If I wanted to preach the whole armor of God, I could. Could I do it in a day? Sure. But we'd be here till six. So I'll have mercy on you. But we're going to start a series on the armor of God. I, I, I firmly believe um, that we are in a, such a pivotal moment in history. I believe we are in a pivotal moment in history. I, I don't think that we are in a moment that we can take for granted. I don't think we're in a moment that we, I believe we're going to look back in the next five to ten years and we're either going to be thankful that we didn't miss it or we're going to have regret that we didn't engage in this moment like we should have. And it's awfully quiet because some of you are trying to weigh the gravitas or the gravity of what I just said. I, I'm, I am firmly believe that the warfare that the enemy is bringing against the church in the coming days is not just about me or you. It is about another generation. And, and, and it's not just about another generation. It's about generations. That I believe that there is, there is hanging in the balance right now a determination of how the next decades are going to go. And we need believers who understand they were not saved from something. You were saved for something. You weren't just saved from sin. You were saved for warfare. And so I, I want to begin this today understanding, uh, you know, uh, Simon Sinek wrote a book for leaders called Start With Why. And, and it's, it's a great principle. It's, it's the reason why, uh, now most of us in the room probably don't watch these things, but when Apple or uh, any, a Tesla, whatever, uh, is introducing a new product and they have these, these forums, uh, they never tell you what they're selling, they tell you why. They, they tell you why you need it, and then they introduce what they're selling. So you've already made up in your mind you need it before they even introduce it. You don't even care. You wouldn't care if it's a toothpick. If they gave you a why that was passionate enough 
that was gripping enough, you'd buy a toothpick from them. And Paul, not taking after Simon Sinek, but taking after the Holy Spirit, starts this pericope, if you will, on the armor of God with why. And he starts it like this. He says, finally, brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. This word strong means to strengthen or to make able. So be strengthened first in the Lord. Somebody shout in the Lord. In the Lord. Our strength, any strength that we have comes from the Lord. Philippians 4.13, Paul said, I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. 1 Timothy 1 and 12 said, and I thank Christ Jesus, our Lord, who has enabled me. 2 Timothy 4.17 said, but the Lord stood with me and he strengthened me uh, so that the message might be preached fully through me and that all the Gentiles might hear. So, so he says to Timothy, the Lord strengthened me. The Lord enabled me. And it is important to understand that any strength we have, any ability we have, comes from the Lord. It is not my strength. It is not your strength. It is not my ability. It is not your ability. It is the Lord who gives me strength. And Paul, getting ready to go into this, uh, uh, go into this dictation of warfare, starts by telling the Ephesian believer and the believer today that you must be strong in the Lord. Your strength must come from the Lord. We're strong in the Lord, but the Bible also commands us to be strong in faith. Romans 4 and 20, he did not waver, speaking of Abraham, at the promise of God through unbelief. That's what unbelief does. Unbelief causes you to waver. It causes you to be tossed to and fro like a wave in the sea. He did not waver at the promise of God through unbelief, but he was strengthened in faith, giving glory to God. How was Abraham strengthened in faith? Because he believed God, that God would do what he said he would do. I think oftentimes we feel like we must have the perfect circumstance in order for God to do what he promised he would do. And that, main, that doesn't come from his word. It mainly comes from this desire to have control. Oh, we don't like this, do we? It comes from a desire to have control. Well, in my mind, I'm going to create an environment where God's promises can come to pass. But the reality is God's promise does not wait on the right environment. God's promise is God's promise, and he doesn't miss a moment. He doesn't miss the mark, and when it's time for the promise to come to fruition, God's promises come to life. Somebody say amen. And so we're strengthened in faith. Then we are strengthened in grace. 2 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 1. You therefore, my son, be strong in the grace that is in Christ. Be strong in the grace that is in Christ. Be strong in grace. What is grace? Grace is the divine influence on the heart. Grace is, is the equipping for ministry. Be strong in what God has called you to do. Be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. Francis Falk said this, when life is lived in union with him, Within the orbit of his will and so of his grace, there need not be failure due to powerlessness. There need not be failure due to powerlessness. Jesus tried to explain this to his disciples in John chapter 15 when he said to them, Apart from me, you can do Apart from me, you can do nothing. Somewhere along the way, we have, we have lost that principle. Apart from me, you can do nothing. I don't think Jesus meant a little something. I think he meant nothing. You can't live without him. 
You can't breathe without him. You can't, uh, you can't father without him. You can't be a husband or a wife without him. Without me, you can do nothing. So because you can do nothing, then Jesus gives them the answer and he says to them, abide in me. Abide in me. So what Paul, in, in, in the pretext of this conversation, is saying is you've got to rid yourself of self-anything. Come on. Rid yourself of self-ambition. Rid yourself of self-strength. Rid yourself of self-desire. Rid yourself of anything that has to do with self. You've got to get rid of it for what you're getting ready to fight. Because self-preservation will keep you off the battleground. There are so many people that they have been saved, but they don't want to get into the warfare because it's going to cost them themselves and their selfish desires and their selfish ideas. And so now they hear this crazy preacher and others get up here and say, this is a war that we've been invited into. This is, we're not just saved from, we're saved unto. And so now you hear that and it's all of a sudden, well, I'm not gonna do that because you've got to cast down your desires. And Paul is saying, in order for you to fight what you're up against, self has to die. Be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. John 3 and 30 said, he must increase. I must decrease. Decrease. And so Paul would go on and say, put on the whole armor of God. This word whole in the Greek means the complete set. Put on the complete set of the armor of God. This word that Paul uses here, it, 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 it speaks to being all in. And I think as believers, what we're, what we're coming to see today and what is going to be required of us in the days moving forward is we are going to have to be all in. Fully committed. Fully engaged in the things of God. Fully engaged in the heart of God. Fully engaged in the plan of God. Fully engaged in his word. And Paul is saying, take on the whole armor of God. Don't, don't just take on the sword of the spirit because we like to just swing the sword of the spirit. And anyone who swings the sword of the spirit absent with the belt of truth is deceived. We like to put on the helmet of salvation because thank you, Lord, he saved me. Hallelujah. We like to put on the gospel, the, sho the shoes of the gospel of peace because thank you, Lord, you give me peace that passes understanding, which is great. But what about the breastplate of righteousness? We'll talk about that in a minute. What about the shield of faith? We pick and choose what parts we want to engage in. And Paul is saying, no, no, in order to be engaged in this battle, you've got to put the whole thing on. Even the parts you don't like. You've got to put them on. Romans chapter 13 and 12, Paul said, the night is far spent, the day is at hand. Therefore, let us cast off the works of darkness and let us put on the armor of light. And now Paul gets to it. Here's the why. Everybody say why. Here's the why. That you may be able to stand against the wiles. Everybody say wiles. The wiles of the devil. Let's talk about the devil for a minute. Here's his wiles. This word wiles, W-I-L-E-S. In the Greek, it means craftiness or strategies. Paul said to the church of Corinth in 2 Corinthians chapter 2 and verse 11, lest Satan should get an advantage of us for we are not ignorant of his devices. This word ignorant means to not know or to not have info, to pay no attention to. We are not ignorant. We, 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 we know his devices is what Paul is saying. In in. The, the word devices here is the Greek word, Greek word pneuma, and, and it means the thought processes. So Paul is saying we're not dumb concerning the thought processes of the devil. That might have been true for the church of Corinth, but I'm not so sure that's true for the church of America. 
I'm going to say that one more time so it can hit you in your gut. I said it might be true for the church of Corinth, but it ain't true for the church of America. We are oftentimes very ignorant concerning his devices. We, listen to me, we have increased so much in knowledge. Come on. We have increased in knowledge. My phone's off, so don't try to call me nobody. We've increased in knowledge. We have increased in the ability to get information into our hands at any moment. Any second of any day. We have increased in knowledge, but we have decreased in discernment. We know everything, but we know nothing. We know everything, but we don't know the devil. And Paul said, we're not ignorant concerning his devices. We're not ignorant concerning his thought processes, but that's not true of today's church. We know his thought process. We know the devices, but we are too aloof and unaware, too distracted, to call things what they are. We care too much about what people think. Come on now. One of the things that, that Jesus had against the church of Thyatira was not that Jezebel was present, but that they tolerated her. It wasn't that Jezebel was in the midst. It was that they were in bed with her. And the church of America better get it together because God is coming to rid the bed of the church from Jezebel. And I know there's so many people that say, well, you need to be kind. You need I'm not going to be kind to no demon. And I'll talk about it here in a minute. Because Paul said we don't wrestle against flesh and blood. We'll get to that in a minute. And every principality needs a personality. So that person that you feel like you're fighting, you're not fighting in the flesh and the blood. You're fighting the spirit that controls them. And I've got authority in Jesus. I'm not going to be kind to no demon. I'm not going to stroke Jezebel and, and, and hug Jezebel just because it comes from a, from a person who's been involved in church for 20 years. Get out of here. All right. I just talk about Jezebel, manipulation, division, sexual sin, and we stand in our pulpits and our preachers are ignorant of his devices. And we amen because it makes us feel good, but there's no power. Mm, okay. So we've increased in knowledge, but we've decreased in discernment. Do you want to know how God, you want to know how the devil thinks? Pervert what God says. If God wants you to be holy, the devil is going to create an opportunity for you to step out of holiness. Let's make it more plain. If, the, if God wants you to be humble... The devil's going to present an opportunity for you to be prideful. If God wants you, if God says be angry and sin not, don't let the sun go down on your anger. The devil is going to present you an opportunity to justify why you went to bed angry at your spouse. You know, my wife and I have this practice. We don't go to bed mad. And, and angry, upset, whatever. We don't go to bed arguing. And, and yes, we've had some late nights trying to reconcile our conversations. But we don't go to bed angry. Don't, why? Because the Bible said don't let your son, don't let the sun go down on your anger. You know what I found? One of the principles that guides us, what I found is, Lamentation said his mercies are new every morning and every minute past midnight that I spend angry, if I carry anger over from yesterday into today, I have now begun to waste new mercies. I've begun to waste new mercies. So the devil will give you the opportunity to do the exact opposite of what God said. Oh, God said, be holy. Well, let's see if you're going to watch this commercial. Let's see if you're, and, and holiness is deeper than that. Oh, God said not to be, God said not to be angry, to be angry and sin not. 
Okay. And the devil's going to come and try to poke holes in that. And he's going to try to put you to the test. And what you've got to come in recognition of is this. The devil's a dirty punk. And the word of God is a sword. And any time that Jesus was tempted in the Bible, he used the sword of the spirit as his weapon of defense. And so are, are you with me this morning? So we've increased in knowledge. We've decreased in discernment. The devil thinks opposite of the way God thinks. Opposite of the way God thinks. And then Paul would continue and he said, so it's not just about the devil and his wiles, but it's about his wrestling. We wrestle not against flesh and blood. But we wrestle against, number one, principalities and powers. It's important to note that Paul is speaking very strongly regarding the invisible realm of warfare. And so because we do not face a physical army, we cannot use physical weapons. It would be really nice if the devil had a face and we could throw hands on sight. It would be, it would be a blessing to be able to punch the devil. But that's just not the way things work. You can't write letters to principalities and powers. So how do you fight principalities and powers? Well, you fight in prayer. You fight in fasting. You fight in the word. I'm going to share with you in a moment about the, the pieces of the armor of God. And he said, rulers of darkness and hosts of spiritual wickedness. In this day, they believe that not only did people... Uh, govern nations and people govern regions but that spirits govern regions and it's the same today spirits govern regions there, there, are, there are strongholds in regions that govern entire governments and they govern entire leadership and Paul is saying you're not wrestling against the physical person you see you are wrestling with the spirit behind them you are wrestling with one who is controlling them behind them. And, and Paul is talking on a much more large level, but on an individual level. There are some of you that are having family crisis right now. Disagreements in family, fights in family, and, and it's really easy to look at that person as your enemy, and that's exactly what the devil wants. But when you realize that the fight is not with them, it's with him... That's when you recognize that you're not going to waste your time anymore trying to fight them when the war is going on behind them. Y'all with me still? Okay. So where does this battle take place, Paul says, in heavenly realms? This phrase is only used five times in the New Testament, heavenly realms, heavenly places, and every one of them is found in Ephesians. Ephesians 1 and 3, 1 and 3, 120, 2-6, 3-10, and 6-12. All five found in heavenly places, heavenly realms. This war takes place in heavenly places. So Paul is causing the Ephesian believer to recognize this is an enemy that you cannot defeat by you. You must have him, Jesus, and his weaponry in order to defeat the devil. Now, I've got to pause here, and I've got to put this in, and then we're going to move on. There's a reason that on some Sundays of this church we say this phrase, God is exalted, the devil is what? Defeated. And who's got the victory? I got the victory. There's a reason we say that, because we're talking about principalities and powers, and then in Ephesians 1, Paul makes this statement that God has exalted Jesus above all principalities and powers. Not only in this age, but in the one that's also to come. And so he is, Paul is talking and he's saying, here's why. Put on the armor of God that you may be able to stand against the strategies of the devil. The craftiness of the devil. And then he says this in verse 13. So we have to first, we've got to be strong. Number two, we've got to be stable. Ephesians chapter 6 verse 13 says it like this. Therefore take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand, stand therefore. Some believers, some people take this verse as to mean now that you've gained the victory, stand in it. That's not what the scripture is saying at all. 
In reality, what Paul is saying is now that you've made the necessary preparations for battle, stand firm and be strong in the Lord. The battle isn't here yet. Stand stand firm and be strong in the Lord. This word stand means to withstand or to stand against. So Paul is saying that in order to stand against your enemy, you need something more than you. You, you, you need the spirit who enables you. You need the spirit who makes you able. That's why Paul started this whole dissertation by saying, be strong in the Lord. You've got to make a determination. I'm going to be strong in the Lord. In, in 2 Samuel, we know the story of Shammah, who the Bible said there were lentils all over the ground and the Philistines came to steal territory from him. And the Bible said that Shammah stood. Everybody else ran, but Shammah stood in the face of the enemy and it was one on 400 and Shammah won. How do you win a battle that you're, you're outnumbered in? You win a battle you're outnumbered in because you are strong in the Lord. It's what Elisha said of the servant, Lord, open his eyes to see that there are more for us than there are against us. There's more for us than there are against us. So number one, we are strong. Number two, we're stable. And number three, we're going to be suited. Everybody say suited. Now we're going to talk about the armor of God for a moment. Do you understand why we need it? We're in a battle. I was not saved For candy cane plastic Christianity. I was not saved into a fragile kingdom. Come on. I was saved not from something but for it. I've been given authority by the Spirit. Everywhere I go, the kingdom comes. Everywhere I go, there's opportunity to take territory back from the devil. Everywhere. So, so I was not saved to just, uh, and I'm, I'm going to, I don't want to, well, maybe I will. I wasn't just saved to come to church on Sunday morning, sit in a pew, check the religious box, and leave. I wasn't saved to come to church on Sunday morning, listen to a song service, hear a good message, and go home. And not be transformed by the Holy Spirit. Not be transformed by his word. And, and so what I have to understand as we come into this is that what is going on with this screen? The devil's trying his best. And I know, it's, I know the team is working, so have patience with them, all right? Have patience with them. They're working to get it fixed. And, and here, here's the deal is that we are in a war by which we can only win fighting with the tools of God. I don't win the war just because I come to church on Sunday morning. I just don't, period. I don't win the war by simply showing up and singing a song in song service. That doesn't just win the war. There is a makeup that you must have by the power of the Holy Spirit to accomplish the victory. So he says this first. He goes through all the why, and then he says this in Ephesians 6, 14. Be girded up with the belt of truth. So Paul is going to use what they understand. He's going to use the picture of a Roman soldier's get up for war. They would not wear this every day, contrary to popular belief. They would wear this when it was time for war. So Paul is going to use this picture, and he starts with the belt. And before a Roman soldier put on his armor, he put a belt around his waist. This held his garments together and served as a place on which to hang his armor. There were three reasons why they had the belt. Number one was so that the soldier wouldn't trip. Hebrews 12 and 1 commissions us to run the race with patience. Run a race with patient endurance so the soldier wouldn't trip. Number two, it's a place where the soldier would support his weapons. The swordsman hung his sword from it and the bowman used it to support the quiver of arrows. 
It was a place, it was a place where the soldier displayed his decorations and medals. So therefore, if the soldier would come out in battle and his belt was full of medals and was full of honors, then the enemy would know, I am coming up against a true warrior. I'm coming up against someone who has been seasoned in battle. So, so Paul, being so intentional, I need you to get with me this morning for these last 15 to 20 minutes. Paul being so intentional, he starts with the belt and he calls it the belt of truth. Why? Because everything hangs on truth. Every other weapon, every other piece of the armor hangs on the truth. The people of the day, when they would gird up their loins, they were girded up by grabbing their robe and tucking it into their belt, which would allow them to move with mobility and travel swiftly. The belt was central to the armor. It held every other piece of armor in its proper place. Truth is at the foundation of the Christian life. Here is the problem that we have run into today. The problem we have run into today is that there are many in the body of Christ who will use every other piece of the armor but not truth. And they will use every other piece of the armor separated from truth. Notice where the sword hangs, the sword of the Spirit, which Paul calls the Word of God that we'll get to next week. He calls it the Word of God. Where does it hang? On the belt of truth. There are so many people who are swinging the sword of the Spirit, but they have no idea of truth. You're not listening to me. There's a whole movement. They call it progressive Christianity. It's a doctrine of demons. That is trying to turn the Word of God to fit culture. The Word of God was never meant to fit culture. Culture was created to fit the Word. His design for life. And so you've got people who call themselves pastors and preachers. And I know there's so many people that they, 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 they idolize the pulpit. They idolize the teaching position. You better be real careful. Because James chapter 3 said that those who teach would be held at a higher judgment than those who do not. Paul was quick to tell Timothy that you've got to rightly handle the word of truth. And so to understand the garment of the armor of God, Paul starts with truth. You cannot get to the other weapons if you don't have truth at the center. And there are so many believers, I'm passionate about this, this is why I stay here often when I get here. There's so many believers that don't know how to interpret the Bible. And so they read one passage of Scripture and we run with it and make it a doctrine. We run with it and make it a banner principle for our life, not realizing that we are twisting and contorting the Word of God. And that everything else in our life is going to fall apart without the belt of truth. Listen. I've got a belt on this morning, and if I did not have this belt on, it would be a, um, a church milk moment, for those of you that know what church milk is. It would, it would end up all over social media. It would be a disaster. If I didn't have this belt on, I'd have to hold up my pants the whole time I'm preaching. But because I've got a belt, my belt holds everything else together. And when the believer has truth, truth holds everything together. It doesn't matter what happens out there. It doesn't matter what happens in your family. It doesn't matter what happens in your heart or in your home or in your, in your body. If the believer has truth, truth holds it all together. And one of the primary ways that the devil fights the believer is through deception. And the way that you fight deception is with the truth. That's why, you, that's why you'll hear me say occasionally, tell the truth and put the devil to shame. Listen, you can only bury truth for so long 
before it comes bursting up out of the ground and ruins anything that's not on its side. Only for so long you can bury truth. Eventually, it bursts forth and truth comes out. So Paul is saying in order to accomplish what you need to in battle, you need to start with the belt of truth. What, how do we use the belt of truth? Well, number one, we use it by knowing it. Somebody say knowing it. We know, what, we know number one, we know his word. Psalm 119.11, that word have I hid in your heart that I might not what? That I might not what? We've got a sin problem because we've got a word problem. We've got a sin problem in the earth because we've got a word problem in the church. We don't want to talk about it. But the fact is this, we can point all day at the sins of America, but judgment begins in the house of God. And the judgment coming to the house of God is that the preachers preached, but they didn't preach the truth. They didn't preach the word. And your word have I hid in my heart, not just so I could quote it and be cool, but so that I might not sin against you. If I can quote the word, but I can't stop from sinning, then the word has no effect on my heart. That word have I hid in my, in my heart that I might not sin against you. John 17, 17, Jesus said, your word is truth. Psalm 119, 142, his law is truth. Psalm 119, 151, his commandments are truth. So we know the truth by his word, then we know the truth by his will. His will, Psalm 51 and 6, your desire in the inward parts is truth. So when God looks at me, he desires to look at me, and in the depths of who I am, he desires for there to be truth. To be truth. His way is the third way in which we know it. Psalm 105, his truth endures to generations. 1 John 2 and 4, he who says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar and the truth is not in him. I know God. Do you keep his commandments? If you don't, the word says that you're a liar and the truth is not in you. So the word, this is not a beat you over the head with the Bible moment. It's just the plain facts. That's why Jesus said in John 14, if you love me, do what? Keep my, sing a song? No. Preach a message? No. Listen to a sermon on YouTube all day long? No. If you love me, keep my commandments. So we know the truth because of his ways. Then, so we use it by knowing it, then we use it by living it. Somebody say living it. We walk in the truth. Psalm 26 and 3, the psalmist said, I've walked in your truth. We talk the truth. Come on, how many of you understand we need a revival of truth-telling in the body of Christ? A revival of, of not hiding from the Lord. A revival of truth and honesty. We talk the truth. Psalm 15, 2, he who walks uprightly and works righteousness and speaks truth in his heart. Ephesians 4, 15, speaking the truth in love. That's how we grow up into the stature of Christ, is speaking the truth. There's a reason that I stand up here and preach hard things. I love you. It's one of the graces that comes with pastoring, is to love the people that call this church home. And I speak the truth because I love you. Someone who doesn't love you would tell you that you're okay and your works can get you to heaven. Somebody who doesn't love you would stand up here and say, oh, we just need to accept every lifestyle. And, and it's okay that we're doing all this. And it's okay that preachers are doing And it's not. It's not. And there will come a day, whether sinners like it or not, that they will be judged not according to their works, but according to the word of God. And there's people that don't like truth. So they go and find a place where they speak a truth that fits their narrative. And a truth that fits their theology. That, oh, grace, grace, grace. But Paul said, I don't frustrate the grace of God. Meaning, I'm not going to accept grace and then live like a heathen. So we, we don't just walk the truth, we talk the truth. Here are five blessings of truth, and then we're going to move to the breastplate of righteousness and be done. Number one, the first blessing of truth is saves us. James 1 and 18, he brought us forth by the word of truth. Number two, it cleanses us. John 17, 17, sanctify them in your truth, for your word is truth. 
It frees us, number three. John 8, 32 said the truth will make you free. Number four, it leads us. Psalm 25 and 5, lead me in your truth. Number five, it protects us. Psalm 91 and 4, his truth shall be your shield and buckler. So Paul, beginning to write the armor of God, he starts with the belt of truth. Everything hinges on the truth. Everything hinges on the truth. You won't have proper discernment if you don't have the belt of truth. You can't receive the gift of the Holy Ghost without the belt of truth. Because he is true. Come on now. He convicts the world of sin and unrighteousness. He's true. You, you can't adequately worship God without the belt of truth. Everything. I'm not exaggerating when I tell you this. Everything. I can't be a husband without the belt of truth. I can't father without the belt of truth. I, can, I sure can't pastor without the belt of truth. Everything hinges on the truth. Somebody shout truth. So he says first taking the belt of truth and then taking the breastplate of righteousness. Somebody say righteousness. Righteousness. This word righteousness, it does not pertain to justification obtained as conversion. That's not what this word means. We are justified by faith at conversion. But rather the sanctifying righteousness of Christ, listen, practiced in the believer's life. As, so, as a soldier, the breastplate protected his chest from an enemy's attack. So then, a breastplate of righteousness, sanctifying righteous living, guards a believer's heart from the assault of the devil. In, in, in warfare in that time, they would stand shoulder to shoulder and sometimes even closer than that and have their breastplates covering their chest. They didn't need anything for their back because they were facing their enemy. And if I could tell you what I just sense that the devil is going to be attempting to do in the next years. I told our elders this the other night in our meeting. You know, we just came out of one election season and we've just entered into another one. I know we're not voting for another two years, but we just entered into another one. And in this Roman warfare, if any one of those men were out of position, it cost the whole troop. If there was any division in the ranks, it cost the whole troop. I told you, we are ignorant concerning his devices because the devil, listen to me, he, he's, he, he doesn't have new tricks up his sleeve. If he saw that in the last election cycle division worked, he's going to try to do it again. He's not trying to divide the world. He's trying to divide the church. And Jesus said to his disciples, they will know you're my disciples. And we get this verse totally wrong because here we are again. We have a belt of truth that's not completely intact. Where we've, been, we've had it taught to us, they will know you're my disciples by your love. No. They'll know you're my disciples that you love one another. Carlos, come here real quick. That we love one another. I don't know why I'm here, but I'm going to stay here, and then we'll get to the breastplate of righteousness. There is nothing more the devil would want to do than to divide this right here. Hallelujah. I'm going to state the obvious. I'm white. He's African-American. We grew up totally different, have different upbringings, different life experience. And there's, if, if, if the, dev, the devil knows... That if this right here stays in unison, his kingdom's in trouble. Because somewhere along the line, the earth is going to have to ask, who's lying? Because mainstream media and social media is telling us that African-American people hate white people and white people hate black people. And, and, and then they come into a church and they see me, a white person, 
hugging a black person and talking about unity and talking about togetherness and oneness of the faith and, and you don't think the devil wants to come in and disrupt this because because people who don't believe are going to have to ask themselves the question who's telling the truth you want to know the devil's devices pervert the way that god thinks Revelation 5, he saved us every kindred, every tongue, every tribe, every nation under the blood as kings and priests of his son and the devil would want nothing more thank you than to do this. Well, we got black churches and white churches. That ain't scripture. There's one church, the kingdom bride who is every color, every creed, every language, every nationality, and we don't find our commonality in our upbringing. We may not find our commonality in our decision-making, in our philosophies, in our political ideas. Here's where we find our commonality. Our oneness is found at the foot of a hill called Mount Calvary where Jesus' blood ran red for every tribe and every kindred and every tongue, and there's nothing the devil wants more than to divide what God brought together at Calvary. So, not only is the breastplate of righteousness important, but unity is of premium importance in warfare to understand we may be different. We may have different ideas, but baby, we're on the same team. All right. So number one, let's talk about our righteousness. 1 Corinthians 1 and 30, but of him you are in Christ, who became for us wisdom from God and righteousness. Isaiah said, my righteousness are as filthy rags. My rightness, my ability to get right before the Lord is filthy. I can't do it. So I have to understand that when God views me as righteous, he doesn't view me as righteous because of me. He views me as righteous because of his son. Are you with me? So our righteousness, number one, is by faith. Philippians chapter 3 and 9, And be found in him, not having my own righteousness, which is from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which is from God by faith. From God by faith. I, I have faith that if I believe in my heart and confess with my mouth that Jesus Christ is Lord and God raised him from the dead, that I'll be saved. I have belief. I have faith. And because of that, I am now a partaker in the righteousness of God. Come on. There will come a day where we will stand before God and the judgment seat of Christ and it will be written it will be examined every word every deed every action that we took and to those who have been covered in the blood God will not see a past of mistakes void of forgiveness he sees maybe a past full of stakes mistakes that are now covered by the blood that is the righteousness of God. Second Timothy chapter 2.13 said, when I am faithless, he remains faithful because he cannot deny himself. You say, what does that mean? That means when God looks at me, he sees himself. John 17 was the, was the impartation of this principle and of this revelation when Jesus said the same glory that you've given me I now give them. That word glory in the Greek is the Greek word doxa and it, in, in one sense it does mean the weightiness of God but in the sense that Jesus used it it means the same viewpoint or the same perspective and so God is what Jesus is saying is God the same way in which you view me the same way in which you view me as son I now give to them so view them the same way that you view me. Jesus did that, not me. Our righteousness is by faith. Number three, our righteousness has been purchased. Come on now. Jesus paid it all. That old song said, all to him I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain. He washed it white as snow. Jesus purchased 
my righteousness. Y'all with me? He purchased my righteousness. After having my righteousness purchased, there is a practical expression regarding righteousness. And we find that in Romans chapter 6 verse 11. Likewise, you also reckon yourselves to be dead indeed to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body, that you should obey it in its lust. And do not present your members as instruments of unrighteousness to sin, but present yourselves to God as being alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. For sin shall not have dominion over you, for you are not under the law but under grace. Verse 16 said, We are, we are a slave to whom we obey, whether to sin or to righteousness. So if you willfully sin, you are a slave to it. Sin has become your master. But if you are obedient to righteousness, righteousness is your master. God is your master. So you've got to recognize that there are some people that come in and they say, well, he's my Lord and Savior. He may be your Savior, but he's not your Lord. He's not master of your life. He's not controlling your life. You, you don't talk to him before you go plan something about your life. You don't say no to the lust of the flesh. He might be Savior, but you haven't made him Lord. That word Lord means master controller. So, he, so Paul is writing here and he said, I reckon. This word reckon means to bear in mind. Bear in mind. Remember. Be dead to sin. 1 Corinthians 15, 31, Paul said, I died daily. Galatians 2 and 20 said, I've been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. In the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. And I do not set aside the grace of God. For if the law comes, if righteousness comes through the law, then Christ died in vain. Somebody come help me close. A.W. Tozer said it like this. In every Christian's heart, there is a cross and there is a throne. And the Christian is on the throne till he puts himself on the cross. If he refuses the cross, he remains on the throne. Listen, listen to this. Listen to what he says next. Perhaps this is at the bottom of the backsliding and worldliness among gospel believers today. We want to be saved, but we insist that Christ do all the dying. No cross for us, no dethronement, no dying. We remain king within the little kingdom of man's soul and wear our tinsel crown with all the pride of Caesar. But we doom ourselves to shadows and weakness and spiritual sterility in my heart right now A.W. Tozer made the argument there's a cross, there's a throne whichever one I occupy Christ occupies the other if I'm Lord of my life Jesus gets put right back on the cross but if he is Lord of my life I have to get on the cross and I have to die. At no point in my Christian endeavor will either of those two seats be empty. They will always be filled and I will be on one and Christ will be on the other. It is my choice as to which one the two of us occupy. Romans 12, Paul said, I beseech you, brethren, by God's mercy, present your bodies a living sacrifice. Get up on the cross. Holy and acceptable unto the Lord at your reasonable act. It's the least you could do. And be not conformed to the world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. That you may prove what is the good, acceptable, and perfect, perfect will of God. So, so Paul is saying, put on the belt of truth. 
that holds everything together and then the breastplate of righteousness that sits on the truth and 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 here the last point our righteousness must be pursued proverbs chapter 15 and 9 said the lord detests the way of the wicked but he loves those who pursue righteousness this word pursue is the Hebrew word redaf. It means to follow after quickly, to chase, to aim eagerly to secure. Proverbs 21, 21 said, He who follows righteousness and mercy finds life. The pursuit of righteousness produces life. Our society has lived following the pursuit of happiness. Anybody ever saw that movie? Read it in the Constitution. The pursuit of happiness. I want you to read what the, what, what, what the dictionary defines as the pursuit of happiness. I want, you to, I want to read it. The pursuit of happiness is defined as a fundamental right mentioned in the Declaration of Independence to freely pursue joy, live life in a way that makes you happy as long as you don't do anything illegal or violate the rights of others. This is anti- the pursuit of righteousness the pursuit of righteousness and the pursuit of happiness do not coexist in the same atmosphere if you're going to be righteous you don't get to do whatever you want to do anymore and if you want to do whatever you want to do you're not going to be righteous you just won't you're not going to live a righteous life. And sometimes the greatest defense against the attack of the enemy is not getting in your prayer closet and, and hucking and bucking until you feel like you got the victory. Sometimes the greatest defense against the assault of the enemy is to take the word of God and to be obedient to everything it says. I've, I've shared this before. I'll share it again. You can stand on your feet as I'm sharing. My daughter was, my oldest daughter, she's six now. She was about three, three or four. And my wife was in a parking lot. Uh, she was taking her in to go to the store. And she was in a parking lot, and, and she got Jocelyn out of the seat and put her down on the pavement and was getting some things out of the car. And Jocelyn just took off into the parking lot. Anybody ever have a kid just take off? towards something you didn't want him to just took off into the parking lot and you know your adrenaline's pumping your heart's pounding your, so Damaris grabbed her and snatched her back and picked her up and said don't ever do that you know gave her the motherly talk and she was telling me about it and, and I got home and you know we want to we want to make sure our kids understand why there's discipline involved in in consequence involved in their decisions and she didn't get you know disciplined per se but I mean she could tell Damaris was on edge so we got home we swung back around to that conversation and I, I said Jocelyn I said do you know why mommy and daddy don't want you to run in the parking lot and she said well mommy told me that I'd get hit by a car yeah it's possible I'm not gonna lie to you it's very possible that you could have got hit by a car and, and I brought it home to an even deeper point of, Jocelyn, why do we obey? So I don't know. Because obedience equals protection. And I said, if you disobey mommy and daddy and you run out into the parking lot, I can't protect you anymore. Because I've told you not to do it and you went and did it anyways. And I can chase you, but there might be a moment I can't get to you quick enough. And obedience sometimes is not just because God just wants you to obey. It's for your good. It's for your protection. There's a reason that Paul writes to the church of Corinth and to the church of today and says, Be not unequally yoked with unbelievers. So well, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to... I'm going to save them. No, you're not. You're going to end up backslidden. I tell you the truth because I love you. Somebody, somebody in this, I don't know why I'm here, but I'm going to stay here. Somebody in this room, you're in a relationship with somebody who's not saved. You need to get out now. 
Run now. Don't think you can save them. Only God can do that. Don't think you can rescue them. Only God can do that. And if you stay on this path, I'm telling you, I've watched it. I watched it in an illustration one time from a man that I admire so much. He took a clean sock and a dirty sock, and he said, now which do you think is going to happen when you put the two together? Do you think the clean sock is going to get dirty or the dirty sock is going to get clean? And lo and behold, the clean sock got dirty. Come on. you got to wash a clean sock in order for it to get clean. And there's somebody in this room, I don't know who you are, I don't know what you do, maybe you're watching online. But you're in a relationship that is not of equal dependence upon God and equal salvation. You need to run. You need to run. You can't save them. You can't rescue them. If you're married, you got to honor the covenant that you made before the Lord and you pray. I'm not saying divorce your husband. I wouldn't tell you to do that. But we're going to come together and we're going to agree that God is going to save him. God's going to save her. God's going to redeem them. But if you're dating in the room right now, or maybe you're engaged, I don't know why I'm here, but I am. Obedience to his word is for your protection. It's for your protection and for his glory. There are so many things in my life that I've been obedient to that when he said, and I look back now and I think, I didn't see his hand protecting me, but I see it now. I didn't see his hand then, but I see it now. 